This is Alexander Sadig and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. Yeah. And, and it actually makes me wonder, you know, did Asimov have a pet? <laughs> hmm. Interesting question. Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a blind spot there when, when Discard is destroying the entire planet, that he's destroying the entire ecosphere <laughs> as well. <laughs> Hello and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode 35 of season three of the Stars End podcast. This week we're going to talk about the short story, The Bicentennial Man, which kind of forms a trilogy with some of the stuff that we've read before. Um, as we noted previously on the podcast, the big tension in the three laws of robotics coming out of the robot novels and leading to the development of the zeroth law was tension within the first law. Uh, the first law stating that a robot may not harm a human or through an action allow a human to come to harm. The robots logicked out the zeroth law that a robot may not harm humanity or through inaction allow humanity to come to harm. And that law then allows them to reinterpret, let's say, the other three laws. So that's the robot novels. Tension is in the first law. In the story that we read last week, That Thou Art Mindful of Him, written by Asimov in the early 70s, the tension's not really in the first law, it's in the second law, where we have a group of robots who are designed to interpret what humans need to have their orders follow. The second law being that a robot must follow orders given to them by a human being unless it's in conflict with the first law. And the robots, through manipulating their ability to interpret who's a human and who's not for the purposes of the second law, then reach the conclusion that they can redefine humanity. And then that, of course, is going to apply to the first law. So there's a big problem there in the three laws. In this story, The Bicentennial Man, there is a little bit of a tension around the third law. And we'll get to that as we go through the recap of the story. So it's a short story. Uh, do we, does anyone know when this was written? Was it? Uh, uh, 75, I think. Early yeah. Continue to continue. I'll look it up. It should be right in here. All right. So the first scene we see is Andrew Martin sitting with a robot surgeon, having a little discussion with the robot surgeon about humanity, what kind of surgery he wants. Andrew asks the surgeon if he wanted to be if ever thought he wanted to be a man. And the surgeon who was really purposely designed as a surgeon, he has cutting tools for hands, for example. The robot doesn't really understand what Andrew is getting at. He says, well, I, I would rather be a better surgeon, sir. 
And in the end, the robot says, who am I performing this surgery on? And Andrew says, you're performing it on me. And the robot surgeon says, absolutely not, because it would cause you harm. And Andrew says, well, that's not really a problem because I'm a robot too. So we're introduced to the character of Andrew Martin, looks like a man, but is a robot. And then we flash back to the beginning of Andrew's story, where he is purchased as a house servant. And there are four humans in the house who he refers to as Sir, Ma'am, Miss, and Little Miss. And if we recall, Vasilia Aliena, the roboticist in two of the robot novels we read, had Giscard call her Little Miss uh, in reference to this story. So a little connection there with the robot novels. Uh, Andrew was actually NDR something, something, something. We don't know what number he had because even he has forgotten the number by now, which is kind of interesting how he's forgotten the number. I'm not sure how that uh, how that jibes with his positronic brain. But in any case, that's what he says. He's forgotten the number. The little miss who couldn't say NDR when she was tiny called him Andrew. And that's how he got the name Andrew. And he's the house servant. Everybody loves him. And he starts to make carvings. And they are beautiful and they are creative. He makes the designs himself following the natural grain of the wood or whatever it is that he sees there, which is pretty amazing. Robots are not really being known for their creativity. So Sir takes him to U.S. Robots. And U.S. Robots, predictably enough, wants to A, study him and B, fix him to get rid of this problem. And Sir says, not a chance. This is a one-of-a-kind thing, and uh, you're not getting your hands on, Andrew. Eventually, they start to sell the carvings, which raises some legal questions. How can a robot have money? At first, they set up a trust. Half the money goes to Andrew. Half the money goes to the family. His body gets upgraded over time, but never his brain, because Sir doesn't want to fool around with the creative part of his brain. U.S. robots, meanwhile, we're told, is moving away from this type of generalized robot, possibly because of Andrew. They don't want any more problems like this. So they're building giant machines. We find out later more about this, but they're building giant machines with giant brains or robots that work cooperatively together or that are super specialized and so have very little autonomy because they don't want any more Andrews. Andrew announces that he wants to take his money and pay it to Sir for his freedom. $600,000, which at the time this story was written, I mean... It, it's still quite a money. bit of money, but back then, that was we're talking real money. Um, Sir is a little grumpy about it, but Little Miss convinces him to take the deal. And they wind up in front of a judge considering the matter. The judge asks, after a little bit of back and forth, the judge asks Andrew why he wants to be free. Andrew asks the judge if he would want to be a slave. And finally, Andrew says, it has been said in this courtroom that only a human being can be free. It seems to me that only someone who wishes for freedom can be free. I wish for freedom. A little, little measure of the man mm -hmm. uh, for Star Trek reference going there. Uh, anyway, that seals the deal. The judge is convinced by that argument. Andrew's saying that he wishes for freedom and the judge declares him free. Uh, years pass. Andrew continues to live near the Martins in a little house on their property. And as Sir is aging and getting sick, he finally grumpily says to Andrew, I'm glad that you're free. And then Sir dies. Andrew starts to wear clothing. And he kind of feels like his command of the language has slipped behind the times a little bit. So he decides he wants to go to the library to get some books about how the English language has changed during his lifetime. On the way, we have what can only be described as the incident. Uh, of course, Andrew, though free, must still follow the second law. 
if anyone, any human being gives some orders, he has to follow. And some, I don't know if they're teenagers or some kind of hoodlum decide to put him to the test. And we get a very ugly scene. They tell him to take his clothes off. They tell him to stand on his head. They're about to tell him to take himself apart when George Martin, who is Sir's grandson and little Miss's son, although he uses the name Martin, interestingly enough, not little Miss's last name. Anyway, because little Miss has a married name. Anyway, George arrives, saves the day. Um, Andrew decides to write a book, a history of robots from the point of view of a robot. Uh, little Miss, who is still around and is rather elderly, is incensed. She wants something done about robot rights. And after a long struggle, a big PR struggle, they do get a law passed making robot harming orders illegal. Now, it's probably unenforceable. And really, if somebody wanted to give a robot orders that it would harm itself, they probably still would have to. But that's the principle of the thing. And then Little Miss, on the day that the law is passed, Little Miss dies. People do die pretty much uh, in line with the dramatic requirements of the story in the story a couple of times here. Later on, Andrew visits George's son, Paul, and uh, we get a little scene of Andrew disapproving of Paul's fashionable makeup. We, we do get a little bit throughout this story of how fashions are changing, as Andrew is sort of this kind of rock around which the time of the story flows. And so fashions change. Andrew is disapproving of Paul's makeup. Later on, we're going to hear about some clothes that a woman, a transparent clothes that some woman wears that it's just, you know, it's the fashion. Anyway, Andrew wants U.S. robots to upgrade him again, this time to an android body. They need to be bullied into it. They confess that they no longer make robots anything like Andrew. But with the help of Paul, who is a lawyer, they do manage to bully U.S. robots into upgrading him to an android body without touching his brain. And it takes a little while for Andrew to adjust to the body. They suspect that maybe U.S. robots did something, but they didn't. They actually legitimately gave him an android body. We skip ahead again. Paul now is dying. Uh, Andrew is working on assimilating hydrocarbons for energy. In other words, eating. And he decides that he wants to bully U.S. robots into reconfiguring his body to use this and other human-like organs. And one of the themes of, of the book, and uh, I mean of the, of the story, which was also in the movie, is that he does an awful lot of research on prosthetics, prosthetic organs, which are a great boon to mankind. A lot of people have Andrew's prosthetic organs that he really designed for himself, but they also are usable for human beings. And he needs to bully U.S. robots into replacing his organs, um, but this time he can do it even by himself without a lawyer. He's now 150 years old, and they refer to him as the sesquicentennial robot, a phrase he doesn't really like very much. Over the next few decades, he continues to work. He spends some time teaching and doing research on the moon, five years on the moon. When he comes back, he decides he wants to be a human being. They tell him at U.S. Robots that he is a de facto human. And he says, I don't want to be a de facto human. I want to be a de jure human. He wants to be a real, actual, recognized human, not just someone who's assumed to be human. Again, there's a big public relations fight. They actually did an interesting legal fiction. They took a test case in which they tried to deny the obligation to pay debts to a human being with an artificial heart on the grounds that they're not fully human, obviously trying to get that reversed so that they can then say, well, Andrew also has artificial organs. He just happens to have all of his organs are artificial. And therefore, if the person with the artificial heart is human, then so is Andrew. Big, long fight. They're still losing. This is where we meet Chi Li Sing, 
excuse me, uh, Daniel, if my Chinese pronunciation is <laughs> good, good, good enough for the way it's spelled. <laughs> no idea. Um, she, he, Asimov does note in passing that she's wearing transparent clothing. I, I just couldn't help thinking that's just an Asimov thing, you know, just like him imagining women wearing transparent clothing. Anyway, um, the purpose of it is to show how fashions have changed. Uh, she is, I guess, the chairman of some science committee in the World Congress, uh, but she becomes a, a great advocate of Andrews. She works really for most of her life in trying to get him declared a human being and thus the surgery to make him irreversibly mortal. That was the opening scene of the story where he was trying to get the robot surgeon to program into his body mortality, that it will eventually wear out and die. And that's what he gets the robot to do. And he he says when asked about it, about the violation of the third law that this represents. And remember the third law that a robot must preserve itself unless that's in conflict with the second or first law. He says to die physically is better than having his dreams and aspirations die. And so his interpretation of the third law is that he must become mortal in order to satisfy the third law. And so finally, he is declared human by the World Congress after this big, I'm not sure if it's called the World Congress, it's the large world legislative body. Uh, he is finally declared human and they call him the bicentennial man because he's 200 years old. And so he fades away. We see him on his deathbed and his last words to the same representative who spent a lot of her life helping him. He calls her little miss and he dies. And that is the story of the bicentennial man. So I'll open the floor to comments from you guys. Well, before we uh, go on to that, because we you asked me to check, um, this was published, unsurprisingly, in 1976. Curiously, it um, it appeared for the first time in a stellar science fiction story, which I had, which I had never heard of, but apparently it was a collection of, of mass market paperbacks with with new short stories in them um, that ran like seven issues. So I guess bicentennials were on everyone's mind. Yeah, very much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a big deal in 1976. That's true. It's interesting that this is after that thou art mindful of him, which again was intended to be Asimov's last word on the three laws of robotics. Clearly, it was not. Well, you know, I I really like this story. I think I'm not alone in thinking that um, among Asimov's short fiction uh this is one of his most famous and most appreciated um it is a obviously it's a you know it's a pinocchio story of which there are many many examples in robot based sci-fi um but but it's done it's done quite well like and i i think that this is uh one of his more successful stories and one of the more successful kind of takes on the the whole pinocchio trope um so i've always appreciated it i'll start with that comment uh, yeah i mean it has it has heart in a lot of ways that i think uh, many of his other stories don't um and, and it's curious because the only character that you really have long enough with the possible exception of little miss the only character that you really have long enough to form an attachment to as a reader is is andrew and he's a you know non-emotional being through most of this uh, yeah, I I really like how how he grows over the two hundred years. Not not just like the 
the changes that he makes to his to his body um are almost secondary to me like it's he the way he finds himself being able uh to just have more subtle and complex reactions uh to to humans o- over the course of those centuries eventually to be able to give orders to humans not just take take orders from them um just in his behavior he really kind of grows into humanity mm. in a way that to me makes makes you know the series of operations almost almost secondary right to in in what makes him ultimately a human yeah, I mean, we see him in his his two interactions with U.S. robots. The first one, he brings the lawyer with him to bully U.S. robots. And the second time around, he goes himself. And even he notes how much more facility he has manipulating humans that he's able, right. he's able to do the bullying himself this time. Yeah, yeah. And doesn't need yeah. a lawyer to represent him. Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at it, that the, that the operations are kind of means to an end and, and the real development is is internal. Yeah. It's interesting in, in some ways. Well, I mean, I want to say two things. One, one is that clearly the Star Trek episode Measure of a Man, though I, I referred to it earlier, owes a lot to the story. Mm-hmm. The courtroom scene where Data is making the case that he is human in order to prevent himself, or that he is a sentient being, not yeah. necessarily human, in order to present him, prevent himself from being handed over to the Starfleet for research purposes. Um, and, and a lot of the similar arguments are made about data as uh, as are made, although although the courtroom seems quite short here. But it's certainly there's there's definitely a, a harmony between those two stories. The other point is that is that it's interesting that this story is almost entirely about the robot and how the robot feels about things. It's true that he wants to be human. He doesn't ever really say why. It's kind of just taken for granted that, of course, he wants to be a free human being because he just has the ability to think and be free. In the previous cases, it was a lot more about humanity. Certainly in the robot novels where Giscard and Daniil are debating whether they can pursue the zeroth law over the first law, it's really not about the robots, although there's plenty of discussion about whether the robots are becoming human or not, discard saying to Daniil, I think of you as human. It's really not about their desire to be human. It's about their desire to protect humanity. In the second story, that thou art mindful of him. I mean, again, it's more about what what is it that makes a human worthy of having orders followed or being considered human. Here, Although there's a lot of discussion about that, the context is that Andrew is just trying to find a way to become human. It's really about him himself. And I, I think that there's an interesting progression there as well between the three, between the three stories. Well, Joseph, I'm going to open up a can of worms that I said I wasn't Uh-oh. going to open up <laughs> about free will. It's okay. about free will because it occurs to me that several times throughout these stories, we come across the idea that robots could not have acted in any other way now it's 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 something you can argue about particularly in the in the terms of the zeroth law where the robots have to talk themselves into it it's not hardwired into their systems the way the other three laws are 
But they themselves make the point that having figured out the zeroth law, they really have no choice. They have to follow it. They have to preserve humanity. You know, we've discussed whether Giscard was right or not in allowing the earth to be destroyed, because how could he possibly have come to the conclusion that that was the best thing to do based on the evidence that he had? But Giscard maybe makes the argument, well, having having the evidence that I had and having the laws that I'm following, I have to follow the laws. I can't decide not to follow the zeroth law. Similarly, Andrew makes the argument about the third law here in this story. Well, you might think that I'm violating the third law by destroying my body. But because I have concluded that my dreams and aspirations are more important, I have no choice but to follow the third, the third law of my interpretation. And I must create death for myself so that I can become human. And so my question is, is that is that is that right? Do the do the robots have no choice but to follow the to, to follow these conclusions that they reach logically? Well that's an, okay that that's an that's an interesting question. I hadn't I hadn't pondered this uh that in this context. Um but one of the things that strikes me is that at some point or another, and in fact, possibly a couple times over the course of the podcast, we referred to humans as rationalization machines. And you know, when when we get to the, I had I had to I I had to make myself mortal in order to become human, and that allowed me to to get around the third law that Andrew was saying. I mean that that could clearly be a rationalization and maybe that's the true measure of humanity is at that moment he becomes a rationalization machine he's no longer you know really obeying well, the third i agree law. i agree it's a it's a rationalization and it's paper thin yeah <laughs> but it doesn't really answer my question that having reached this rationalization does he have any choice could he himself say well that's just not a good enough rationalization and i need more or does he have to follow it does he did and are does giscard have to allow the earth to be destroyed you know, much as we blame him for making what looks like a pretty shoddy decision, maybe maybe he had no choice. Hmm. I don't know. I guess I'm not going to get an answer out of you either. <laughs> well, I, 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 it's an interesting question, but on the other hand, it it um, on some level diminishes the robots' characters if they if they have to follow if they have to follow some some you know immovable program, then you know that also diminishes the. Um, you know the the notion of of you know you know bravery heroism whatever kind of uh, uh, positive qualities that we would like to look up to in these robots we really have no just justification for it so uh, um you know as, as a matter of storytelling it would be a little it would be a little less satis satisfying well it it does lead to what is the ultimate free will can of worms right because what is it that we want on our own free will, I think we want to be able to look back at decisions we've made and say we, in the words of Daniel Dennett, could have done otherwise. Mm. And that's the big question. Could we have done otherwise? Or are we, like the robots, ultimately just machines carrying out maybe a very, maybe a very complicated or complex program? But, you know, is there really a could have done otherwise? We certainly have a subjective sense of that, right? When we think to ourselves, we think we could have done otherwise, but that's the key question about free will. Could we have done otherwise? And that's where you need a whole other podcast of, you know, a few hundred hours in order to talk about it. And at the end, not come to any conclusion. Yeah. Well, I guess the question to ask yourself is, have you made the different, have you made a, a different decision 
um, in very similar circumstances. Well, again, it, it doesn't really matter because in each circumstance, having made a decision, we don't really know whether we could have done otherwise. I mean, if we are, if we are not dualists, if we believe that the physical physical reality is all there is, and that our physical selves follow deterministic physical laws, then you can make an argument that all of our decisions, there really is no could have done otherwise. There is only the decisions that we made and that our subjective sense of being able to do otherwise comes from the fact that we, well, one of the ways to describe it is to say that we cannot model ourselves. We cannot make a full model of our own brains inside our brains. That's physically impossible because the model would have to include the model, would right. have to include the model, would have to include the model forever. Turtles and on the so way we down. can never, right, we can never fully predict our own actions and really neither can anyone else. And so we are left still, despite being physical creatures in the physical world, we are still left with the subjective sense that we could have done otherwise. Hmm. And for philosophers like the aforementioned Dennett, that's good enough that, um, you know, it's a question of when we say we want free will, what is it that we are saying that we want? I don't think it's randomness. We don't want some kind of dice cup inside our heads being thrown to give us a random outcome. We want our decisions to be the result of our expertise, experience, preferences, feelings. Like that's what we want. And that's how our decisions are made. Whether there is some kind of non-physical process happening that gives us free will, well, what is it that we want? We, do we want, we don't want randomness, right? What, what is it, what is it that we want when we say we want free will? Well, we, so, we want the perception that we we're making decisions. Then we got it. We're there. Hooray. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have, but, certainly um, have the perception. We absolutely have that perception. I do. I have yeah. the perception that when it comes to making a decision, I think about things. There are a number of different choices. I choose between those choices based on whatever criteria occur to me at the time. I absolutely know that. And I, I assume for you guys and most people, there is absolutely the perception that we are making choices. Right? Yeah. And is that, yeah. yeah. And well, you think emotionally that should be good enough. I, 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 mean, I, I think can, what we fear. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you. you well, I think what we fear, what, what we fear is what, you know, Dennett, I, there's a book called Elbow Room, which I highly recommend, although it's very out of date now, which is a series of essays by Dennett about this very topic. Um, and one of the things he says, what are we afraid of? We're afraid of the nefarious neurosurgeon, the person who can, who can, who can get into our brain and make changes and manipulate us and, and be like a puppet master and pull strings and make us do things. Like that's why that those funguses that, what was it in last of us, right? The, isn't it like people are being controlled by a fungus? Cause like there are ants that are controlled by a fungus and they're made to change their behavior. We, we fear that being made to change our behavior. We fear that someone else could look at us model us and predict every single action it would take away our subjective sense that we have that we have free will so yeah, as long yet, as none of that ever happens we're happy yeah yeah fair enough but and yet but people are doing that all the time stochastically right it, it you know they're that's the and whole we thing. hate it we hate it when they do that yeah it, it, it's obnoxious yeah. and yet and yet you know we all go out and and you know <laughs> 
buy the new flavor of Doritos or whatever it is that the, the TV commercials are telling us to do. That, that we are certainly not free from manipulation. If the last, you know, uh, oh, ten years in U.S. politics has has told us anything, it's that. <laughs> there's there's a whole science of putting things on grocery store shelves and how oh. that makes people buy one thing and not another. Yep. I mean, there's an enormous yeah, and we but we fear that. We absolutely fear that because it takes away from us our subjective sense of free will. So, well, I, I think I, 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 I think I know a way to find out. Yeah. Um, okay. Because if okay, so assuming that you know that many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics makes any sense, <laughs> okay. right? I mean, it's like you know there are you know every time that that something goes one way and it could have gone another, right? Um, you know, but that's probabilistically splitting up the splitting off the universe into into two quantum states, right? I mean, that's I'm sure that's an oversimplification, right? Sure. But uh, sure, <laughs> sure. No, but sure. I get the point, though. I get the point yeah. that you're making. So I mean, as soon, as soon as as soon as we can see them, right? There, there'll be either when 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 we can view other other quantum realities, either there will be just ones that are caused by things that have a random factor to them um uh, random random factor to them uh you know physically or there will be just a, a a huge myriad numbers of of places where humans have made slightly different decisions and slightly slightly different um humans other sentient beings of course also uh slightly different decisions at the, at the same moment because, because if we are, if if I, I think if what you're saying is that with the lack of free will, is that regardless of our perceptions, we're wired in a way that we have to come to a particular conclusion. There would be you you would see none of that in all of the uh, quantum realities. Sure, although I look forward to the Kolosinski Institute producing <laughs> these experiments where we have multiple uh, multiple worlds. Um, sure, sure. Uh -huh. I, I guess that I still, you know, I still come to the, I, I guess I sit in the camp that says, well, I guess I'm saying we don't have some form of free will, mm -hmm. some form of truly free will, because we are deterministic creatures living in a deterministic universe. And that randomness isn't good. I don't, I don't like randomness. I don't want random decisions, although there might be a random element there. Uh, but I, again, I come back to this question of, well, what is it about what I'm saying is what is is something that people don't want like what what do people want above and beyond what i'm saying and the answer that always comes back is well i want to make a choice and and my reply is you are making a choice you're making a choice based on all of those things i said before all of your experiences and and uh yeah. and, and learning and, and your preferences those are all real they're just determined and yeah Okay. I'm trying to get at what is the choice that you would want to make that is not determined by those things well, maybe, maybe it's a cart and the horse situation because it's um, it's not that because we certainly have the perception that we have free will. Yes, but is the you know is the deterministic nature force of the universe forcing our decisions, or is our is the consistency in our internal decisions forcing the um, forcing the deterministic nature of the universe? I'm making a decision. Every version of me will make that decision. I'm making a decision, and that's driving the. Does well, it? Does that make sense? I mean, it's it's. 
yeah, you know, we're. <laughs> I guess it makes sense. Although I think I come down very strongly on the side of that we live in a deterministic universe, and that's what's that's why your decision is always the same under exactly the same circumstance. But it doesn't take very much to allow you to make a different choice. Mm. Um, you know, the, it's it's impossible to get to exactly the same circumstances more than once. But I think we're kind of going beyond. This is why I was afraid to open up this topic because you know it takes you beyond the scope of the podcast, sure. where we're talking about robots and and the third law and 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 Andrew Martin and his desire to become human. Yeah. Well, so the the, the it's question, a fascinating topic, one that I have. Go ahead. I was just say the, the the question is are we are we are we predetermined to continue talking about this or can we move back to the. <laughs> Well, I, I think I have a way to get us back closer to the story again without without completely leaving behind oh, the do. issue of freedom. So um, instead of thinking about uh, complete, uh, you know, issues of free will and so on, let's let's talk a little bit about um, freedom uh, in the legal sense in which it's being pursued in the story and Andrew's quest for emancipation. And um, I had, you know, I, I had some problems with this section of the narrative in that um, I'm left questioning what legal freedom means for a being that has the second law built into it. Um, and in particular, this is actually pointed up for us when uh, Andrew runs into these two uh, kind of jackasses on the street and they decide to screw around with him and and tell him to start dismantling himself um and uh he he's narrowly saved by i i forget which which lawyer which member of the family is the lawyer at this point <laughs> it was george yeah george yeah. so so george comes along and happens into andrew and, and saves him and then you know this is evidently resolved uh in by passing another law saying that you know the one liberated robot can't be given orders um that doesn't seem to me to be a fully satisfactory solution to this issue to me i i was kind of wondering well, and i think that's addressed in the story yeah. right where yeah where they know that even though there's a law you can't prevent someone from giving andrew orders they'll just yeah. be breaking a law yeah. and that even at that the law is really difficult to enforce and and I think the point that he's making is that in a lot of ways, it's a Andrew is free because he's able to believe himself free, you know, and that the humans are kind of going along with it to a certain extent by passing a law, by having, you know, these big PR campaigns that that bring them around to his side. You're right. Ultimately, he still has to follow the second law and a new law making it illegal to give him harmful orders isn't going to really help if somebody's really going to be malicious about it. It's the same thing with his $600,000 that he gives to Sir. Yeah. Like, Sir takes the money because he says, well, I know that you won't consider yourself free unless I take the money. So I'm taking the money. And it's really about what Andrew believes. You know, I mean, I, I can't shake the feeling, though, that the second law is in a sense immoral. <laughs> I mean, even if a Andrew is able to believe himself, convince himself that he's free, you know, building the second law into robots is, it seems to me, just guaranteeing that sentient beings will be a slave race. Uh, 
it yeah you know, I, I it's it's never quite put exactly that strongly i think in asimov but i've never been able to get a, away from the uh, something about this that really bugs me see i th- I, th- I think that's true and i think the the place where it becomes tricky is the fact that um you know, like particularly at the point where we're at now right there are no sentient beings that are you know, as far as we know there are no sentient mechanical beings yeah it, you know the, the toaster's going to toast it has that you know <laughs> it, it, it's got no sentience about it right right and and so you know the, certainly the toaster isn't a slave but then as we start to create things that are more and more and more recognizably you know, you know sentient human sapient however you want to say it um you know then at some point yeah we're gonna have to take a hard look at uh we'd have, we'd have to take a hard look at that second law yeah although I, there'd be a lot of momentum about it and i like i believe me like i don't i don't want autonomous weapons platforms that <laughs> that don't have a second law right <laughs> yeah me that you know like i'm not saying that i have an easy solution of just like robot liberation um but right you know it if it really bugs me it bugs me about these stories um and i i don't fault asimov for that i think he has at least some awareness of this but um this this yeah this is one kind of hole left in this narrative for me yeah well i you know i'll go back to what i've i've said before yeah. which is that unlike many people who did world building asimov goes back and questions the premises of the world that he built and I think he does go back and question the premise of the second law, uh, how it creates mm-hmm. a race of willing slaves. I don't think he just leaves it there. And I think that that's part of what he's doing here is kind of examining that. Well, what if we have a sentient creature yeah. that is hardwired to follow orders? What are, you know, what are some of the implications of that? And I, I really admire that in Asimov, that he he went back and and didn't just say, well, you know, my three laws are perfect and bulletproof and, and anybody yeah. who questions yeah. that can go to hell. He, he really looked at them and went, well, what would really happen? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's too bad he didn't have more time, I think, to, to do more of it because I think it's fascinating. So I credit Asimov with, yeah. you know, he yeah. gets, he got so many accolades for his three laws. Like, Oh my God, we're going to, we're going to build real robots now. And we're going to design them based on Asimov's three laws. And Asimov is there saying, well, you know, wait a minute. And, and of yeah. course, you know, like you say, you don't want uh, autonomous weapons platforms that don't have a second law. <laughs> and part of within world, part of Asimov's logic for having a second law is to protect humans from the robots who are stronger, faster, smarter, whatever than human beings are. And we need the second law to protect us yeah. and, and the first law. And he certainly acknowledges that along the way. Yeah. Although so now we've you've just you guys are just giving me kind of a disturbing view of the story because um you know, what was the response? So, I mean, you go back right to the beginning and the inclination that, or, or the indication that Andrew's got a, a hint of humanity to him is the fact that he can create art. We've never had a robot to, to recreate art. This is a, a, a positive strangeness that they weren't anticipating, um, just like discard reading minds. But then, you know, what's the response of U.S. robotics? We are locking this shit down. We are going to make sure that there are no more robots that can do this. We are going to make these paths completely deterministic. And we're going to pull all the ones that have the potential doing it off 
completely, you know, we're, we're, we're going to pull them off the market. We're going to scrap them. That's almost a genocide. I guess so. It, it's certainly something you could see happening. Yeah. You know, considering what we know about capitalism and corporations and, you know, to have robots like Andrew wandering around leads to a whole bunch of questions about sentience and how are we treating these robots? And as a corporation, man, I don't want that. I just want, you know, these things are tools. I don't right want my, my hammer going to court to try to get freedom. I, I was actually a little bit tickled by the way in which we saw the uh, U.S. robots uh, corporate policy change. Uh, and and they they stopped selling robots and moved to lease leasing models and uh and then like with planned obsolescence and and mandatory 25 year <laughs> return yeah. policies and things like that so i i i got a i got a little kick out of that it seemed to be prescient about the way that tech companies might operate <laughs> we certainly have seen through these stories asimov kind of wrestling with what he wants us robots to be Mm -hmm. Right. There's the whole issue of robots on Earth versus robots out in space. Certainly the previous story that thou art mindful of him has this ongoing theme in, in Asimov's stories about human beings not wanting robots around because they're afraid of them. Caves of Steel had that where the robots really are no longer living on the Earth, there, except that the agricultural robots that people never see. There's this there's this idea you just talked about, the leasing model versus the selling model where you know, who owns the robots and U.S. robots protects itself in several of these storylines yeah. by only leasing. And so therefore they can always call back the robot again. They, they, the robots, their property. Uh, you know, we saw that in the original iRobot stories, a bunch of different configurations that, and again, it's, I think we're seeing Asimov kind of wrestling with various different nuances of his world building and what the implications of, of various things he wrote before are going to mean now mm -hmm. and uh, i find it very endearing as i yeah. <laughs> seem to never stop saying yeah. <laughs> okay let me ask you guys about uh about the conclusion uh, okay which um finally the uh the the one thing that andrew has to do in order to successfully be recognized as human is to is to die um and then that that is where I guess it is politically convincing that um, the 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 most human thing about being human is mortality. Um, did that did that seem convincing and appropriate to both of you as a way to end this story? I th okay, I thought it was a little bit tricky because. Um actually what seemed to be uh what, what seemed to be a theme throughout the entire story was that um you know andrew was approaching things in a very very rational manner and he's not doesn't always get it like you know when when he would talk to george or um you know the, the congresswoman later that you know, didn't always get it that um you know that the um the the, the people the congress are going to accept a rational argument Mm -hmm. um and then um and then right at the right at the end he he you know makes this uh you know makes this heartwarming uh, makes this heartwarming sacrifice and then that's enough to that's that's enough to almost instantaneously turn the it seemed abrupt honestly mm -hmm. um 
Yeah, I mean, and there's bits, and I don't know if I could find them in my notes, but. Uh... Well, for me, a lot of it comes down to the Pinocchio part of the story, which mm-hmm. is that Andrew becomes obsessed with being a man. And that means getting the other men to accept him as a man. Because there's nothing magical that happens when the World Congress or whatever they call it declares him a man. There's nothing that, that by that makes him a man. I mean, it kind of comes back to the idea, like, is he free? Well, he's free if he thinks he's free or if he wants to be free. But to me, I, I don't understand why it's necessary for him to be a man. Like, why is not why is it not enough for him to be free? Why does he have to be human? Why can't he just be a free sentient being that's not human? I don't really understand why he requires that the other humans accept him as human. Well, could it be the second law? Right, because I mean, well, he had the one he, he wanted to be free, and I mean, and a lot of these, and and there's a lot of um, blanking on the word that I want, but you know, like philosophical victories that really have no impact, like that robot, the robot rights resolution, or the fact that he's declared he's declared that he can be free if he can buy himself from from uh, from Sir. Um, he's still subject to the second law. Yeah. He just has a human law that forbids people from giving him orders that will harm himself. It, it doesn't even forbid them from giving him plain old orders, like go down to the store and get me a cup of coffee is still going to be an order that he would technically have to follow. Well, uh, but, but would he, right? Well, okay, I mean, and I guess it's in the positronic pathways rather than in the wording. But, um, you know, if he can believe that he is a human, right, then the third law doesn't apply to him so much as the... Or the um, or the second law doesn't apply to him so much as the first law, right? If he's a human and he's accepted that he's a human, he can say, um, "I don't have to obey that. I do not have to obey that order order to harm myself, or or just any order like that order or any order. Me a cup of coffee. Like yeah. when he goes to the moon, he leads a team of twenty researchers, mm-hmm. and he reflects on how he had no trouble giving them orders." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing in the three laws that prevents a robot from giving human beings orders True. other than sort of basic respect. But we still don't really know what would have happened if one of his researchers had given him an order. Right. Uh, I guess it's implied that they respect him so much that they would never dare. Mm-hmm. But he's still subject to the second law. Um, and again, after he's declared human, he's still subject to the second law, I think. I don't know. I mean, it's not addressed. It's not addressed yeah. whether his approach to the second law is changing. The only thing that's addressed is his ability to order humans around. And like in the in the, in the the bullying, like the first time he would never dare to bully U.S. robots himself. So he has Paul the lawyer do it. The mm-hmm. second time he's like, yeah, I, I don't need Paul the lawyer. I can, right. I, I, I think I know how to do this. And, um, it's an interesting question. It's not addressed in the story. Does is his second law like George nine and George ten in that thou art mindful of him? Mm. Has he managed to change the way he follows the second law? Right. So, well, yeah. So, so is that is that legal fiction enough for him to be able to change his behavior internally? Well, whether it changes his behavior or not, it seems to satisfy him. Right. So, on on this point of why he wants to be a human 
I have one additional hit. I'm not sure it gets us closer to a solution. It might just give us a different problem, but it is highlighted right at the beginning of the story, right? So you're, we start in Medias Rays with Andrew talking to the surgeon robot who is going to give give him this final kind of damaging surgery to make him right. decay. And, uh, you know, as part of this conversation, number one, Andrew recognizes how specialized the surgeon robot is, which we later learn is kind of a U.S. robot's response to Andrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, I think, of this conversation, he asks the surgeon robot, you know, wouldn't you like to be human? And this, And the robot says, no, I would like to be a better robot so that I could save more human lives which is a really standard kind of three laws robot thing to say. Um, And, you know, we don't get to hear Andrew's response to that either like in, in word or in thought, but it seems as if what's being played up is that these very specialized robots are obeying the three laws in a different way. And that Andrew's, at the time of Andrew's creation, his uh, his kind of the the move toward generalization of the robot mind that U.S. robots was working with at the time, that 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 might have something to do with why Andrew is deciding to answer that question differently. At least that's the impression I got. Now, if that's what Asimov meant us to to see. It doesn't really answer the question for me of like why why would a more generalized kind of mind be able to or or have the need to think of itself as human? I I still don't make that connection. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure it would would need to think of itself as human, but I think it has the 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 more generalized mind I think has more potential for variation, mm-hmm. right? Like you know, like the ability you know, like the ability to create art, for example. Right. And, right. you know, they, they really do make a, or Asimov really does make a strong point about that surgeon being limited. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, he he didn't know who Andrew was. He, the, the assumption is that he should know exactly who Andrew was if, if he were a, a more, you know, fully realized, you know, fully realized personality. But he's well, just, by this point, Andrew, who is now a, an android, mm-hmm. presents as human. Yeah to the robot surgeon well i mean i'll give you a sequence which just occurred to me which is possible could be the kind of logic that andrew is following that andrew having really become sentient and creative desires this concept of freedom for himself so how can he get the freedom he can be declared legally free um, he can be given some protections, but I guess the highest form of freedom that he can achieve is to get the same kind of freedom that the other sentient beings around him have. And the only way to get that freedom is to get those beings to declare him one of them so that at that point he can truly achieve freedom. And that would explain why just buying himself isn't good enough and why just having a law that he can't be given harmful orders isn't good enough. He has to join the club so that he himself can believe at this point that he is truly free. Cause there is a lot of that 
you know, we've really pointed out a lot of these things are legal fictions or just beliefs, right? And Sir says, you won't believe you're free unless I take your money, so I'll take your money. And so maybe the reason he wants to be human is because it is really the only example of truly free sentient beings that he has any experience with. And in order to fully believe that he is fully free, he has to become one of them. So that's my, I just thought of this. So I haven't, I haven't had time to test it out, but no, that's okay. But because that makes sense. Cause actually it reminds me of um, the, the moment that I, I maybe truly became um, as opposed to the um, figuratively was uh, in favor of marriage equality uh, you know, came when I, the year, there's a year I lived in, in Michigan. Um, and so previous to this year, my thinking was, well, if people who have civil unions have, you know, these, the same rights as people who have things that are called marriages, then, you know, it, it shouldn't matter. We, we, we have de facto marriage equality and, you know, it, it, this is like 2005 or 2006 and, and, you know, and otherwise it's going to be, otherwise it's going to be a big fight using the word marriage but then I'm, I'm sitting in the car i i hear um i'm listening to npr or something it might or a news station and they say uh you know that the, the the michigan legislature is can you know going to change the set of rights you get from having a civil union with respect to you know to make them different from the set of rights you get from being a married couple and at that point i'm like okay gotta be marriage right there's 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 no question about it we have to use the same language because otherwise there will be room to make this sort of distinction. It could be very much the same thing, right? I mean, there, there's um, the, the de facto and de jure. You know, de facto isn't necessarily right. good enough because somebody can then say, well, you know, you have this qualification, you have this qualification, and th those are, even though we technically consider those the same, we're going to make those different. No, I think that's a very good point. And, you know, I, I, I want to go back to... Um... A similar point about data from star trek we know that data wants to be human um always from the moment we meet him he's he's definitely a pinocchio story yes and one of the questions you you can ask is well why why is what you are not good enough why do you have to be human and in data's case there are some real concrete things that humans can do that he can't not just using contractions but feeling emotions mm -hmm. i mean that's a now you can debate, and I have, I have to admit, engaged in some of these myself, as to whether, in fact, some of the things that Data does and says can only be explained by the fact that he actually does feel emotions of some kind. So that was never really fully fleshed out. But for Data, there's a big difference. And in fact, for data, just being declared human really isn't enough. He mm. still has to pursue it because there are capabilities that he doesn't have that he's trying to get. And so that, I think that's very different from Andrew. In Andrew's case, it's really not about the capabilities. Those capabilities are not going to change. Now he does have some capabilities that no other robot has, and that's a bit of a story MacGuffin, you know, that just sort of appeared. We mm -hmm. don't know why that happened in Andrew's case, but it did. And so, so it certainly sets him apart from many of the other robots, but he's not looking to acquire new abilities. He's acquiring, as you said, he's he's acquiring, he's looking to acquire de jure instead mm -hmm. of de facto. And for that, he needs the humans to agree. Mm -hmm. And that's why, in his case, it's not good enough to be de facto. He has to be de jure. 
Now, I don't, I don't propose necessarily that Asimov went through this whole thought process himself <laughs> when writing the story. But, you know, that's, it seems to me that that's what's in the story. Yeah. Because otherwise you have to ask yourself, why, why is what Mark, uh, Andrew is, why is it not good enough for him? Mm. And it, this, this is why. Yeah, he lives that... in a society full of humans and he, he wants to be treated the same as them. Yeah, maybe we should read the novel. Maybe we should. I'm pretty sure somewhere I have, although I don't recall what's different about it, which is why, you know, I originally I thought maybe, maybe the things that are in the movie, the Robin Williams movie, of the bicentennial man, maybe some of the differences came out of the Silverberg treatment. I, I don't know. It might be worth. It might be worth doing. I'm not sure what. Um, you know, just thinking about the movie. It was pretty faithful to this short story. It certainly made the same points. I'm not sure what is gained by fleshing out the story. Mm. Like the story seems to do enough. I don't know. And, and again, I say that not either not having read the Positronic Man or not remembering it. Right. But I'm just wondering what what is there that needs to be said that isn't being said here? So that's, uh, that's the good, question. Yeah, my yeah, my, my 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 opinion of that is usually that there isn't anything. Like you know, there there's nothing in the expanded version of the Puppet Masters that wasn't in the the original version of the Puppet Masters, as I recall. I mean I've read them both. You get a different feel from the story. Because when it is trimmed down to that minimum, that that very very sh- you know that that very shortish length for a novel, it feels like everything is moving at a breakneck pace, and 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 it's you know a, a constant state of crisis, and it I think make, gives the story a sense of urgency that you lose a little bit in the expanded version. You know, frequently a lot of things that get cut out by editors should have been cut out by editors. That's so true. I, I remember uh, reading um, A Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. by Anthony Burgess. Mm-hmm. And if you read the, and this is still true to this day, if you buy a copy of it in the UK, there's one more chapter than there is in the US. Because in the UK version, which is the Burgess official version, Alec, Al, little Alex, the hero, who you know goes through like being evil and then he goes through this treatment that forces him not to be evil, and then they kind of clean it out of his system and he can be evil again. In the British version, there's an extra chapter where he sort of grows out of all that and becomes a normal, productive member of society, Hmm. which is the way Burgess originally wrote the book. The U.S. editor, I don't remember the name of the U.S. editor, got a hold of it and went, nah, I'm cutting out that last chapter. That's garbage. It's much more chilling and sinister to end the story with Alex becoming the same evil person he was before. And that's when they made the movie that Stanley Kubrick made the movie. That's where, where the movie ends. And it's very chilling. You see, Alex is going to go back to his life of murder and rape and crime. He's not going to grow out of it and become a productive member of society. Anthony Burgess to the day of his death hated that. He couldn't stand that they cut that last chapter out and that they made the movie that way. But man, in my opinion, it made the thing about five times better story. Uh, cutting it out or leaving it in? Cutting it out. Absolutely. Cutting it out. The U.S. editors were right. Stanley Kubrick was right. That's a much better story, mm. in my opinion. Yeah. And obviously in their opinion, too. Well, my feet, okay. I, I don't know about an American story because I've, I've I've seen the movie, but I haven't read either version of the novel. But um, th- there's something to be said for the American view of freedom there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, ju- I'm just in saying. A, in A Clockwork Orange. In, in in the different in, in choosing between those two endings. 
you know, the, the free and because we have so many people, particularly now, I mean, or it's at least it's particularly noticeable now that, that we have a lot of people in America who read freedom as I can do whatever the hell I want, whenever the hell I want to. It's almost a, a lawless kind of an attitude um, that really isn't what, um, you know, 50 years ago we understood at all. Well, although that is, you're right. I mean, that is what the freedom that Alex has is a very frightening form of freedom. I mean, he's mm -hmm. going to just kind of, you just see his future is he's going to cut a horrible swath through society. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's his freedom that he's gotten back. Yeah. Um, and if, um, which is what makes the story chilling to me. Yeah. It makes it chilling, but then, yeah, it all, but it, puts a completely opposite spin on the um... it absolutely does but i i just find that the the story where burgess wrote it and said well don't worry alex is gonna sure he's cleaned out and he's gonna become evil again but you know a couple of years will grow out of that so don't worry yeah like it, that seems to rob the story of its of its chill uh might rob the story of its chill but i mean there, there there's the dimension of the you know the ethics of of mucking to someone's personality to that extent well right so that is of course there that's yeah there and, and if you well except if you've got if you've got um if you've got burgess's original ending then the harm to any to everyone that they were doing with that um with that process wasn't necessary because they were able to, you know they were basically able to transcend their circumstances and be you know without it right yeah, you know, well, uh, I agree. It, I, I, yeah. I just well, go ahead. Go ahead. You finish your point. Well, it's, it's you, know, you know, you know, without that, without that ending on on the, uh, without that ending, then it's it's entirely that should have been done for the good of society. It doesn't matter how much it harmed these individuals. We need to do this for the good of society to protect society. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's really the conclusion. I mean, I I get from it a conclusion that says. The same in the same way in both versions that mucking around with his personality, you know, and, and the other ways that he famous that they famously do, that that's wrong. That that should not have been done. But the American version then asks a very difficult question, mm -hmm. which is, well, if we can't do that because that's beyond the pale, right. what do we do? We're going to have people like Alex. Whereas the British version, it, it just says, well, eh, don't worry about it. He's going to grow out of it. And he's going to be fine. The American version sort of says, well, we have a big problem in our society, which is that we have this type of person, but we can't chemically change them. What are we going to do? How are how are we going to address that? So I, I find that more disturbing and more, um, you know, I, I don't think that the American version is endorsing evil little Alex. Mm -hmm. I think they're they are criticizing what happened to him the same way that the British version is, but, but they're just then leaving open the question of, well, society needs to do something. Right. And, and we don't know what we're going to do. We're yeah, well, but, yeah. But I mean, it doesn't have to be, it, it doesn't have to be an endorsement, right. It, it, but it, it could be, you know, the way I was reading it is maybe we're stuck with this horrible thing. Maybe it isn't beyond the pale. And, um, ah. Yeah, I didn't see. I didn't get that impression, but you might be right. Well, I, they, you know, they, I'm, I'm, they, they should have just left him that way. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying all this without the without the benefit of actually having read the book. That's the right? best way. 
<laughs> the best way to do literary criticism is by not reading the book. Yeah. No, well, but I think you've got the point. I, I don't think that you're um I, I don't think that you're misinterpreting the book. I think that you're that's certainly a valid interpretation. That maybe the American version is saying that they should have left him in his altered state. Uh, and and I, I just think that the American version is is saying, well, if they might be saying that, but if they're not, either way, they're saying, what terrible thing do we have to do to protect ourselves? Because we have to protect ourselves. And, and that is, yeah, and that chaos. is, and you're absolutely right that that is chilling. Well, that's, that's why I like that version better. This just comes back to the idea of editors. Sometimes when they make things shorter, they're doing the right thing. And why does a novella have to be expanded into a novel? Often the answer is it doesn't have to be expanded into a novel. And maybe that's the case with the Bicentennial Man. But again, yes. not having memory of reading the Positronic Man, it's really hard to say. Yeah, fr frequently the, the reason why is that a, a, a novella has to be expanded into a novel is money. I guess that, I mean, I, I did you ever read the original Ender's Game short story? I think I have, but I don't I don't have a clear remember memory of it distinct from in fact I'm sure I've had it on my shelf, so I must have read it, but I don't have a real clear memory of it distinct from the novel. Because there's a case of a short story or novella being expanded into a full-length novel. I look at the novel for Ender's Game and I I think it's actually pretty compact. It's mm -hmm. it's pretty it's pretty well done. And I'm trying to think, well, what what would I if I was going the other direction, what would I cut out of the novel? Well, and what what would what's not necessary? And there's not much. Yeah, and I guess the the question is, if it's a a childhood's end situation or it's a puppet master situation, right? Because childhood's end, you know, the um, guardian angel story is pretty much intact, and it's the first third of the book, kind of like um, Canticle for Leibowitz. Right. They added chunks, you know, they added big chunks on the end of that. If um, and if you know, so that's like writing new stories and having new things to say, as opposed to taking a story and filling out, filling out the details, which I think is it's probably much more problematic to have new things to say in that kind of a context. Right. Interesting. I actually was not aware until just now that either Childhood's End nor Canticle for Leibowitz were originally shorter. I love both of those, by the way. Yeah, love them. Two of my favorite science fiction stories. Yeah, so the the short story for Canical for Leibowitz is just the story of the monk in the beginning where he finds the 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 artifacts, and there isn't the big jumps into the future where we end up back with the same sort of you know nuclear standoff that we we you know that that created the the uh, setting for the first story. Right. The end of Guardian Angel is. Um, you know, uh, Stormgren. I assume. Yeah, as the reveal, Stormgren. Stormgren actually sneaks. Uh, actually, and I, I think that's still in the novel, right? He sneaks in the um, sneaks in the 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 Flash so that he can look at what Corellon looks like, and except, right. yeah. But rather than rather than that, putting that out, putting that off until when he's descending the you know descending the uh, the ramp from the spaceship, and oh, it looks like the devil. Uh, you know, right. You, you see, you know, we it's revealed to us right at the end there. Right. In the in the book, uh, Corellan is asked about it many years later, and he claims that he didn't see anything. But we are led to believe that he did. Yeah. But I guess in the Guardian Angel story, we're told what he saw. Yeah. Not just that he saw something. No, but I, you know, obviously that in both of those cases, there's a lot more 
than just filling in. There's adding on. Yeah, I mean, that's because, yeah, basically both of those are the, the first third of a novel and then the novel progresses from there. Right. Um, I don't. Yeah, I, don't I, think... I, I should go back and read some of these, especially the Ender's Game story that that I'm, I bet that's online somewhere. Uh, yeah. And it was a um, seems like I bought it in a pretty inexpensive, like a paperback size hardcover. Um, who knows if that's probably not still available. I'm wondering if that's just the story. Yeah, that's just school. yeah which would be fine, too. Maybe, but, um, maybe. Uh, but but if it's just the story in battle school, then there's there's really a lot more to say. There certainly is. There certainly yeah. is. All right. Well, do we have any any final um, thoughts on the bicentennial um, man to get back to the original purpose? Yeah, I want to. Um, let me. Okay, so a, a quick comment. Um, actually, two quick comments, and then yeah, a question that, that we can. Uh, um, so one comment, and I was like kind of pondering this today as I was re-listening to it, is. Um, you know, it just struck me as curious that because something that was something that was written more contemporaneous to to where we are would totally have brought in the notion of the singularity, and that could have very much turned the end of that the end of the story on its on its ear. If humans wanted to upgrade, wanted to upgrade and have this sort of uh, this sort of immortality, it, it would, would I would have think I think it would have been interesting just to. Um, look at the directions that might have taken the story so kind of general comment number two or actually unless you guys want to say anything to that well i guess i would want to clarify in terms of the singularity do you mean that you could have had andrew designing the next generation of of robot well i mean the yeah the point with the well the singularity is the point where theoretically humans would be able to upload their consciousness consciousness to a computer and leave their biology behind Oh, okay. So that's the sort of the transhuman side of it. I was thinking of this side of it where part of the singularity is that we've designed machines that can then design their own successors and that we can no longer understand what it is that ah. they're designing. And so you wind up with a race of machines that, that are beyond us and beyond our comprehension. Yeah, which which might be uh, might be one of the, the, the directions where it went in that case. But yeah, I was thinking of the the, the upload. The upload and, and the leaving your leaving your biological body entirely behind because because that seemed to be that seemed to be an issue that there was those bopping around in the um um toward the end there uh the second and it, it, yeah. it's it's curious because in in both in that art mindful of him and this story there's kind of religious iconography centered around susan calvin where i mean in this, in this story there's a um there's the you know the the one of the characters has a death mask of her in his his um in his office and he refers to them as the quote patron saint of of uh of robotics or refers to her as like the patron saint of robotics and that struck me and it's kind of curious uh given his really humanist leanings it's curious that asimov might do that in the same way that he was really coaching uh, psychohistory in religious terms in some of the later um, foundation stories. So kind of a, just, yeah, a, a, I've a, often a, wondered about that, you know, whether Asimov was using that because, you know, whatever his personal beliefs were, he just recognized that his reader was going to be affected powerfully by mm -hmm. religious imagery because there was so much of it around. That he, that he lived in a world that was steeped in it and right. that um 
that made it something that he used. Or maybe he was, again, regardless of what his own feelings were, just very interested in that in that tendency of human beings to, you know, to deify somebody like Susan Calvin. Yeah, and and honestly, in in the the foundation stuff, you could read it as a sign of the decline of the foundation. Because that was a point where they were they were very naively depending on psychohistory. It's a mule story, I think, where they're very naively depending on psychohistory to keep them okay, and then of course it all fell apart. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They had a religious view of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's certainly something he came back to a lot. Yes, um, but but thing number three, and this is this is a question, and I'm not sure I know the answer, but it. Um, it's kind of informed by um, some of the discussions we had when we ended the what, during our last conversation of, of Robots of Dawn. Uh, not Robots of Dawn, sorry, Robots and Empire. Because thematically, this story reminds me very strongly, um, as does Measure of a Man, of the, um, the Heinlein story, Jerry is a Man. Have either of you read that? I don't think so. Okay, so... Um, Basically, um, there's a um, a corporation that genetically engineers animals. You know, in some cases, raises them and raises them in, in terms of their intelligence, and then sells them as as household workers, or actually leases them as household workers. And then, when their usefulness is over, they you know they euthanize them. You know, they 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 say, oh, this is a lease. We're taking back the we're we're taking back this this servant, and then we're going to you know we'll replace them. But then they end up being um, maybe they don't maybe they're not euthanized, but they they certainly don't have pleasant lives after that. And it's um, all about whether Jerry, who's this um, you know this the the, the simian anthropoid, deserves rights. And it ends in a courtroom scene. Um, I don't want to exa- ex- entirely spoil the ending for you guys, but I'm kind of curious. I, clearly, Asimov could write the bicentennial man. I'm curious if he could have written Jerry as a man, even though they're very, they're very similar in a lot of ways. And maybe, maybe we should read that and come back to it. Maybe. I mean, I don't see any reason why not. But go ahead, Daniel. Look like you're about to say just who who is the author? Robert Heinlein. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the same question. It's a question of developing yeah. sentience. You know, do robots yeah. have sentience? Do animals have sentience? And, uh, yeah, uh, but it's also um, we also got on the you know Asimov just completely disregarding all of that in the end of Robots of Dawn or Robots and Empire. That's true. Yeah, and and it actually makes me wonder. You know, did Asimov have a pet? <laughs> hmm. Interesting question. Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a blind spot there when when Discard is destroying the entire planet, that he's destroying the entire ecosphere as well. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like in, in the story that thou art mindful of him, there's that that weird approach to the ecosphere where he's going to replace huge parts of it with robot versions yep. of it, which was just weird. I, I'm yeah. still waiting for my uh, robot worms. Uh, you know, robot it, worms. Yeah. This spring, you know, you I, need them I wanna... to catch your robot fish. Yeah, right. I mean, I I need to get get uh, all the my my uh, yard uh, going. Spring is uh, fully fully in effect, and I need to get those robot worms going and, and break up the soil some. Yeah, and we know we're all screwed without the robot bees in a couple decades. We're totally screwed. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, they just found a frog that pollinates flowers, sunflowers. Interesting. Possibly the only frog ever discovered that does that. Uh Possibly. And and you don't want to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) Well, maybe on that note, we should wrap up and, and come back in two weeks with something else. To be determined. All right, then. Well, unless there's anything else. I think it's time to, to say goodbye. Okay. So long. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end. <laughs>